Well, I want to begin today uh, by reminding you of one of the most famous stories, of a story that is arguably the most famous story uh, of one of the most, about one of the most famous um, people in the Bible. And uh, the character's name is David. And if you know anything about the life of David, there's lots of famous stories about David. And if you're anything like me, your mind is right now racing through them, trying to figure out which one is arguably the most famous. I mean, you go all the way back to the beginning of his life, and you find when he's just a boy, God comes to the prophet Samuel, and he says, look, I'm pretty much through with this king of Israel whose name is Saul, and I'm done with his disobedience, and I've chosen the next king of Israel. Now, here's the deal. He's just a boy. So he's not going to assume the throne right away. It's going to be a while before he's actually the king himself, but I want you to go anoint him now, and let me describe him for you. He's the biggest, he's the tallest, he's the fastest, he's the best looking, he's the most intelligent, he's, you know, top of his class, he's the class president, he's the most popular, he's the most articulate, he's the, he's, he may be, but that's not what the Lord says. He's a fabulously talented guy, I think we've got to give him that. But there is one characteristic that God describes this young man by, he says, look, let me describe him to you, he is a man after my own heart. There's a sense in which God is saying, he's kind of like me. He shares my heart. And the Lord doesn't say that about anyone else in the Bible. David's famous for that story, but I don't think most famous. And then as you travel forward, you know, you come to David and Goliath, which parenthetically is not just one of the most famous stories ever told about David. It's one of the most famous stories ever told about anyone. And it may be the most famous about David. It's not the one I'm moving to, but you've got to consider it. I mean, it's an amazing story. Again, David's just a boy. He's not a soldier. He's not in the armies of Israel, but his brothers are in the armies of Israel, which are squared off at this valley of Allah against the Philistines. You know, the Israelites on one side and the Philistines on the other side. And you know the deal? Every day, here comes the great giant warrior Goliath, this Philistine guy, and he comes across the valley of Allah. And he walks over to the Israelite campment, which is up on this hill, And he defies the army of the living God to send out a warrior, a champion, to fight on on their behalf, in behalf of their nation, and of course, to fight him. So there aren't a lot of takers for that, all right? So David shows up. He's sent by dad. He's bringing bread and cheese and whatever. And he came basically just to see how his brothers are doing. He shows up just in time for the daily rant of Goliath and just in time also to watch all the Israelite guys, it says, run for their tents. And he's offended on behalf of God that there's nobody to stand up for God's name. And even though he's 16 or 17 years old, even though he has no training as a warrior, even though he carries only the implements of a shepherd, a rod, a staff, a a sling, he goes forward on behalf of the entire nation. I mean, he figured he had a little time anyway. So, And he fights the giant who's described, by the way, in terms that ought to make us think of a serpent. You know, for example, his armor is described as scaly. And how does he die? David gets that rock and he slings it and it hits the giant and it says it sinks into his forehead. He's crushing the head of the serpent. This should sound familiar. It's a picture of Christ who, on behalf of His people, goes forward and does what was predicted of Him from the beginning. He would crush the head of the serpent. David is prefiguring Jesus Himself. He frees His entire nation. And at the age of 16 or 17, the women of Israel are singing songs about Him. I mean, if you're a junior in high school and that is happening for you, that is about the coolest thing ever. 
And he's famous, way famous, maybe even most famous for that story, but it's, it's not the one I'm thinking about. You know, if you know what happens next, there are all these different stories about King Saul. And King Saul maybe gets wind of the fact that some other buddy, some other guy, someone else has been anointed to be the next king. King Saul is pretty clear on the fact that he's kind of coming to an end as the king. And he's not happy about the fact that the women of Israel are singing more songs about David than they are singing about him. And so this rivalry and this jealousy begins on Saul's behalf toward David, and he starts trying to hunt him down to kill him. He gathers up his armies, and there are all these stories about how Saul is out hunting David out in the wilderness and the desert places, and he's living in caves and all of that stuff. But he's surrounded by this band of men who are drawn to the heart of God that they see in him and who voluntarily, therefore, risk their lives and live like animals. Such is the magnetism of this guy. He's an amazing leader. And he's famous for those stories, but I don't think most famous. And of course, David becomes the next king of Israel upon the death of Saul. And eventually, under his leadership, he unites the entire nation, northern and southern kingdoms. He expands their territory, wins great victories and all kinds of cool stuff. And then in addition to that, not only is he a great leader, not only is he a a great warrior, but he's a great musician. He's He's a great poet. He's the sweet singer of Israel. He single-handedly writes most of the hymnal of Israel, this book in the Bible that we know of as the Psalms, which as somebody told me anyway, is the single most preached out of book in the history of the church. That's significant. I mean, this guy is famous for a lot of pretty amazing things, but I think he's most famous, at least arguably for his one big screw-up. For this same David, this man after God's own heart, this writer of the book of Psalms, this one who risks all in defense of the name and of the fame of his God, even as a boy, this man who demonstrates all the charismatic gifts, if you will, of the Holy Spirit in his leadership of the nation, this same David commits adultery with a woman whose name is Bathsheba, And then she gets pregnant, and then to cover over his sin as the king of Israel, he has her husband, whose name is Uriah, who is a faithful and a good man and a soldier in his own army, murdered. Stunning. David, I think, is perhaps most famous for that, and not simply because he committed this most scandalous of sins but because he committed this most scandalous of sins. And then when the the prophet Nathan came to him, bringing the word of God to him, instead of taking one additional step and killing the prophet, he submitted to the word of God, he confessed his sins, and he found forgiveness, even for that. And we know that he found forgiveness, not only because the writer of 2 Samuel, where all of this is recorded, tells us that he found forgiveness, but we know that he found forgiveness because David himself tells us. David wrote down the confession of his sin. And then when he got to the end of it, he didn't fold it up and stick it in a safe somewhere. He didn't burn it up praying, oh, dear Lord, don't let anybody see this because, I mean, this is going to be a terrific reminder of my huge blunder. But instead, what he did is he took his own reputation and he folded it up or he tore it up or he burned it up. 
He recognized that there was something more valuable than his name and his fame and his reputation in preserving himself and spinning everything politically as the king of Israel and all of that stuff. He literally took his confession of these great sins down to the temple, down to the choir director, and he handed it to the choir director and he said, look, here's the deal. I want you to put this in the hymnal of Israel. I want you to include it in the book of Psalms, the most preached out of book for the last 3,000 years. So he was reckless with his reputation, and he was reckless with his reputation for me and for you. See, he did that not just so that all of us can be reminded of his big, deep, dark sin. That's not it. He did it so that all of us would be reminded that, like him, we could find forgiveness from all of our deep, dark sins. And this morning, I want to look at that confession, which we know of as Psalm 51. And I want to begin by looking at the superscription. If you've ever read through the Psalms before, you know there's like this little introductory paragraph. It's usually in a lot finer print than the rest of the Psalm. It comes before verse 1. I want to look at that for starters. And I want you to understand as we look at it that that's part of the Bible too. That's part of the Hebrew text that's inspired by God too. That itself is Scripture as well. Just because it doesn't have verse 1 in front of it doesn't mean that it isn't the Word of the Lord. And I want you to see what David is saying here because from the get-go, David is revealing his heart. He is unmasking his life. He's very clear and he's very graphic. He says this, he says, for the choir director, meaning I took this down and I gave it to him to be included in the hymnal of Israel. I'm doing this for the worship of God. I am doing this for the glory of God. I am doing this for the benefit of the people of God who need to find the forgiveness that I have found. He says, a psalm of David, so he names himself. And then he tells us the occasion that gave rise to it. He says, when Nathan the prophet came to him. Actually, what it says, literally, and that's the way we need to read this, is it says, when Nathan the prophet went in to him. He's saying that he's been penetrated. He's been penetrated by the Word of God. He's been penetrated by the Spirit of God. He's been penetrated by the conviction of God. The Word of God came to him, and he was unavoid. I mean, his sin was unavoidable to him. When Nathan the prophet, he says, went in to him, and then he says this, after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Get the point? He's not pulling any punches here. He's getting right to the heart of the matter. And so with all of that in mind, with that kind of honesty, David then cries out. There is a passion to this psalm. There is a desperation in this man's voice. This man needs something And he tells us what it is right out of the gate. He says, be gracious to me, O God. What he's saying is, I need some relief here. I need pardon here. What I need from you, God, is grace here. Why? Because he's absolutely guilty. He's already told us when Nathan the prophet went into him after he had... You got that point, right? So David doesn't come to God, you know, looking for forgiveness, carrying his bag of excuses along the way. He doesn't come and say, look, God... I'm guilty. I don't feel great about that. I'm not real proud of it. I'm not all that happy about all the consequences that it has caused in my life and continues, by the way, to cause in his life for many years after this. But the reality is, I mean, that woman had something to do with it. And I I think at least arguably you have to think that maybe she did. 
Do you know the story of how it happened? David is up on the roof of his palace. And I know that sounds weird, but it's not weird when you understand that the roofs of the palaces of the kings in the ancient Near East were gardens created for the king to go up on the roof in the cool of the day to enjoy the breeze in this otherwise unbearably hot place, created for beauty and for peace and tranquility. And no doubt he walked there all the time. So he's up on the roof of his palace, and his palace is located right on the upper edge of one side of the Kidron Valley, which is a very small valley. You look straight down into the valley. You can stand there today, and it comes straight up the other side, and right on the other side, even to this day, there are residences there. And if you're standing there right now, you can look right in the window. When you actually see geographically how this plays out, you understand David doesn't need binoculars, man. So what was she thinking? Does she not know where the king's palace is located? Does she not know that the king walks on the roof of his palace? Does she not know that wherever it is that she's bathing, she's bathing in plain sight? And if she doesn't know that, should she not have known that? David leaves it all behind. He is not bringing any of that with him. He sets it aside and says, look, I'm going to own this thing. Because no matter how many excuses I come up with, the reality is... Guilty. David is teaching about the kind of confession that leads to forgiveness, and the kind of confession that leads to forgiveness doesn't come with a bag full of excuses, and yet we do it all the time. It's kind of like, look, God, I know that I'm involved in this. I realize you're not happy about this. I'm not all that happy about it most of the time. And, you know, here's the deal. I bet if you knew my wife, you'd be commending me. You'd be saying, good grief, that's all you're doing? Here's a medal, you know? I mean, really, what do you expect? Or if you knew my husband, you know, you'd be buying me gift certificates at restaurants around the town. I mean, this is amazing that all, well, this is all that I'm doing. If you knew my parents, if you knew my history, if you knew my upbringing, if you knew the way they treated me and spoke of me, and this happened, 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 and I don't want to minimize any of those things. Those things are profound. Those things are formative. Those things leave wounds. They're significant. There is an explainability, I think, oftentimes to the patterns of destruction and sin that develop in our lives. But that doesn't change the fact that there are patterns of sin and destruction in our lives. And they're our lives. And at some point, we've got to set aside the bag of excuses and own it before the Lord. David leaves it all behind and he says, look, you know, I mean, I could talk to you about this and I could talk to you about that and I could tell you about this and this happened and this here and this and, you know, and all of these things. But you know what the bottom line is, God? I'm guilty. And what I need is pardon. Pardon. That's the bottom line. He says, be gracious to me, O God. I'll tell you what else he doesn't do. He doesn't bring all of the good things that he has done. And he did a lot more good things than I have done. I'll tell you that. I mean, I don't know how many Psalms you guys have authored. Anybody? Have you written any of the books of the Bible? I mean, it's kind of crazy even to begin to compare yourself to this man on any level other than his failures. I think that's why it's the most famous story. It's the one that we relate to the best. He doesn't come and say, listen, I know I blew it big, adultery, murder, the whole thing. 
But if you put that on one end of the scale, and then if you put all this other stuff on the other end of the scale, it starts kind of balancing out at least a little bit. I mean, it, at least it mitigates against some of my guilt, oh God. No, it doesn't. See, the reality is, unless you're perfect, then you need forgiveness. And he's not, and I'm not, and we're not. He says, be gracious to me, O God. And then he gives us the basis for his cry for relief, and it has nothing to do with him. Not be gracious to me, O God, because remember, and I did, and you said, and then, and no. He has nothing to bring, and he makes it so clear all throughout the psalm. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. He's saying, look, be gracious to me, pardon me, simply because you're gracious. Simply because that's an expression of who you are in your essence. It is your character to forgive. And that's something that so many people miss. So many people think that God is just sitting around waiting for them to screw up so He can hammer them. When instead He's sitting around waiting for them to confess and repent that He can forgive them and wrap His arms around them. And He's made every provision for us to do it through Jesus. But David gets the grace of God, and so he says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, for your compassion is so great, he says. And then he says, blot out my transgressions. It means literally to erase them. He's saying, look, even though I'm guilty, erase it. Declare me innocent, but don't stop there. He then says, and make me clean. Blot out my transgressions and Then he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin because I can't make myself clean and neither can you. And the reality is that for us to enter into the presence of Almighty God, we need to be clean and not just clean, spotlessly clean, perfectly clean. And it is the presence of God in David's life more than anything else that he misses. You know, for all of the things that our sin costs us, relationships, jobs, money, hope, dream, conscience, self-image, self-esteem, that's a lot of pricey things right there. I mean, that's just, that's huge. But for all of the things that our sin costs us, and it costs us a lot, the most precious thing it costs us is the presence of God. And I think the challenge for us in life is to value the presence of God more than anything else, more than money, more than sex, more than relationships with other people, more than anything. And so David says, look, be gracious to me, O God, According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, he says, declare me innocent. And then he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin that I might know your presence again. Because David understands that it's not enough for us just to be declared innocent. Having been declared innocent, we need to know that everything's okay. You know, I think those of us who are parents kind of get that almost intuitively because we see it every day with our kids. You know, our kids come from us, and you know what that means? It means they screw up. 
It means they're little sinners that come from the big sinners who are their parents. We're just a little more sophisticated in covering it up than they are, you know? I mean, really. They're just like us, doggone it, in so many ways. That's a little scary at times. But if you love them, you discipline them, don't you? If you love them, you discipline them, don't you? And then when you've done that, what do they need from you? Well, they need to know that they're forgiven. So you need to declare that. And then what else? They need a hug. They need a kiss. They need for you to climb up in bed with them that night and to say something like, you know what? If God lined up every 10-year-old girl that has ever existed in all of the history of man and every 10-year-old girl who will ever exist in all of the history of man, if he lined them all up in front of me and he said, okay, Tom, you can take your choice for your daughter. Which one do you want? You know who I would choose every time? I would choose you. Every single time. We need not only to know that we've been forgiven by God, we need to know that everything's okay with God. That when God lines everybody up, you know, His heart is for you. That's true, by the way, if you have faith in Him. Or if you come to faith in Him. So David says, blot out my transgressions, declare me innocent, and then wash me clean. Don't leave me filthy from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin that I just can't seem to get off of myself. For I know, and there again, he's being really, really graphic. He says, for I know my transgression. He's unmasking himself. He's dealing really seriously with his issues. The word know he borrows from the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 4, for example, where it says that, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and then she conceived and bore a child. David knew Bathsheba, and oh, parenthetically, then she conceived and she bore a child. It's an experiential knowledge. David is saying, I know my sin, and it is bearing something very horrible in my life. He says, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. When I look to the left, it's there. When I look to the right, it's there. When I look you know, to, to behind me, it's there. In front of me, it's there. Up, it's there. Down, it's there. I close my eyes and for crying out loud, I can still see it. There's nowhere I can seem to go to get away from it. I know it experientially and I'm weary of it. And my sin is ever before me. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute, because there's a, a dead husband and a defiled in some sense wife, and families involved, and that's all true. You know, in our sin, we damage people. We damage ourselves. But our sin is ultimately against God. He says, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And I know you want to say, justified when you speak condemnation toward me and blameless when you judge me guilty, but that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, so God, I've sinned against you, and if you forgive me, you're blameless. Blameless when you judge me innocent. There is a sense in which he's saying, people are not going to understand when you forgive me because what I've done is so heinous. 
but I've sinned against you and it is your prerogative to sin or to to, uh, forgive. You will be blameless when you judge me. Innocent is the idea. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. And so here again, it sounds like he's blaming mom. And we blame mom. But that's not at all what he's doing. He's saying, hey, listen, here's the deal. My problem is bigger than just my actions. He's recognizing the scope and depths of his depravity. He's saying, look, I'm not just somebody who sins. I'm fundamentally and constitutionally a sinner. I'm not just somebody who's committed an an act of immorality. I am an immoral person. He's saying, I didn't just fall. I'm fallen. And so then, God, I don't just need to be pardoned and I don't just need to be cleansed. I need you to give me the power to stop sinning or I'm going to fall back into this again. I know what I'm capable of, and I don't have the moral ability to quit apart from the power of your Spirit, and here's the deal. I really want to quit, and that too is an important point. David, again, is leading us to the kind of confession that results in in real forgiveness, And, and the reality is that somebody who really is interested in forgiveness really also is interested in changing, in being different and getting help. You know, they don't come to God and say, you know, hey, God, I know I live like hell today, but here's the thing. I don't feel good about it. I'm not real proud about it. And so I'd like you to forgive me for it. But in reality, I'm kind of planning to live like hell tomorrow. And maybe even kind of looking forward to it. They say, you know, Lord, I live like hell today, and it breaks my heart and I need you to pardon me. I need you to make me clean. I need you to climb up in bed with me and say, you know what? I choose you. And then I need you to give me power to stop and to help. Because I can't do it on my own. And God does that. He gives you His Spirit and He gives you people who are filled with His Spirit to help pull you out of the ditch. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's lamenting his weakness. He says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part. He's speaking of his conscience. You will make me to know wisdom. He sounds almost like Paul. He's saying, look, I I know what the right thing is to do, and I desire to do the right thing. I just don't have the moral ability to do the right thing, and I keep screwing up. So purify me with hyssop, this plant or this shrub that was used ceremonially in David's day. They would dip it in the water, which, which would represent a cleansing, and they would dip it in the blood, which would represent the innocent animal or the innocent blood. It prefigures Jesus, the innocent who dies on behalf of the guilty, that by his innocent blood he would cover over our sins. He's saying, when you purify me with hyssop, well, then I shall be clean, and wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow." And then he says, make me to hear joy and gladness, which is kind of odd because you can't hear an emotional state, but you can hear a word of pardon. You can hear a word of restoration. You can hear an I choose you and you're special to me and you're my son and you're my daughter. You can hear those things and that produces within you 
and emotional state. He says, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones, which is, believe it or not, a reference to his psyche, let the bones, my psyche, which you have broken through the penetrating conviction of my sin, let them rejoice. Let me release the burden of guilt and despair and replace it with joy. Free me, he's saying. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities, he says again. And then he says in verse 10, create in me a clean heart. And again, he runs to the beginning of the Bible, the creation story. And he chooses a word, that word to create, where God creates everything out of nothing. David is saying transparently, look, God, I have no raw material to bring to this equation. I need for you to create a new and a clean heart in me, and I need you to do it out of nothing. I have nothing to offer. But in grace, he's saying, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away, he says, from your presence, for that's what I value more than anything else. And do not take your Holy Spirit away from me as God did with King Saul. David didn't have to look too far back into the past to find a pretty poignant example of that. In the Old Testament, you see the Holy Spirit coming upon these leaders, particularly throughout the book of Judges. You know, you think of Gideon. You think of Samson who did all these ridiculous things, supernatural things. As God equipped them supernaturally to lead the nation, you think of Saul. And then you think of the spirit that was withdrawn from Saul. And David is saying, look, I know I've blown it, sort of like Saul blew it. And I want yet to be useful to you, but I can't do that on my own either. Don't take your spirit away from me. He's indicating there that there is a usefulness for God on the other side of forgiveness, particularly for people who care less about their reputations than they do about the glory of God and who therefore are willing to have conversations with folks where they say, you know, you probably never would have known this about me, but let me just tell you, this is what God has brought me through. This is what my past is. This is what I've been set free of, that they might be set free as well. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit, and then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then I will tell them of your grace. Then I will take this confession down and have it put in the book of Psalms, and sinners like everyone here today will be converted to you. They will learn that no matter how big you've blown it in life, you can always come home. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, from murder, he's saying. Oh God, he's not dancing. He's being honest. The God of my salvation, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Oh Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise when you've set me free. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, he says, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Not a proud heart, not a defensive heart, not an excuse manufacturing heart, not a sin harboring heart, a broken and a contrite heart. Heart, O God, you will not despise, meaning you will always receive. And then his thoughts turn to the future, for there is a future for those who find forgiveness. There's productivity on the other side of this. And he says, by your favor, do good design. Build the walls. He's saying, build the kingdom of Jerusalem. 
And then you will delight in the righteous sacrifices. He has feasts in mind with these sacrifices. Then you will delight in the righteous sacrifices and the feasts and the burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings. He's saying, it's not appropriate now. Feast now on my broken spirit. But then, having set me free, having built your kingdom, then it will be appropriate. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. David is leading us to forgiveness, and he's saying forgiveness leads to fruitfulness for the kingdom of God, to the advancement of his kingdom as people see the difference that Jesus makes in me and in you. As we deliver over to him in worship our reputations and our past. So David is famous for a lot of things, and I don't know, maybe David and Goliath wins the day, but I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I can't relate to David and Goliath. I mean, there really, you know, weren't a lot of women singing songs about me when I was 16. Just, you know, like my mom, maybe. Maybe. But I can relate to this. I get this. He's famous for a lot of things, but I think he's most famous for being a really big screw-up who also found really big forgiveness from a really big, gracious, loving-kindness kind of full of compassion God. And he offers that to you as well, but you know, you've got to quit making excuses. You've got to stop blaming this and that and the other thing, and here's my, you know, and here's all the reasons, and, you know, let me manufacture my case for you so that you can give me a, you know, gift certificate to the Cheesecake Factory instead of coming down on me for... We all have paths in life, and we're all where we are, and we're where we are on our own behalf too, aren't we? Come to God and say, look... This is it. It's what I've done. He knows already anyway. And bring a broken and a contrite heart. Not an arguing heart, not a proud heart. Not a heart that's harboring things as being more precious than the Lord. But a broken and a contrite heart that says, you know what? I've lived like hell today. And it's breaking my heart. And I want to be done with it and then confess it. And not just our sinful actions, but our sinful condition. We're not just, you know, people who sin, we're sinners. We're not just people who fall, we're fallen. We are incapable morally of getting it right all the time. In fact, most of the time, almost any of the time. We need the Spirit of God and we need each other. And then ask God to declare you forgiven and to make you clean and to climb up in bed with you and to say, you know what? You're my girl. You're my boy. And if I could choose anybody in the whole world, by the way, I can. <laughs> Good news. I choose you. For God is gracious and full of loving kindness and compassion. And He has given us everything we need to be forgiven in Jesus who lived the perfect life, hear it, because it's what God demands of us. He did it for us. And He died the sinner's death on the cross that we deserve. And He rose from the dead to give us life and forgiveness and pardon and that we might be cleansed with His perfect blood.
It's amazing. So David is famous for a lot of things, but I think he's most famous for finding what we're all looking for and then leading us to it as well. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that there is forgiveness to be had in this life because we are a people who, in our honest moments, know we need it. God, we thank you that there is a cleansing uh, that is better than any cleansing we can do because we can't make ourselves clean. Father, we thank you that there is a Father who's not sitting around waiting for us to screw up, but sitting around waiting for us to come home, to repent, to confess, to bring our lives to Him, broken as they may be, and to receive healing and forgiveness, to start anew, to begin again in a right relationship with the Lord. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus who lived and died and rose again, that all of that can become a reality in our lives through faith in Him. I pray that you would make us thankful and that you would drive us to the Lord. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.